0: Listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you've enjoyed this sermon from our Advent series, "Let Heaven and Nature Sing." For more information about CBC or how you can get plugged into a community group, visit our website at www.cbcsavannah.com. the God of unending praise. And, and so we want to offer that praise to you this morning and we want to come and ask for your help because in ourselves we have no strength. In ourselves we have no ability. And, and Father, I pray for our time. You, you know my prayer, the prayers that I've been praying all week. I want your light to shine in our hearts just to enlighten, uh, to, to shine upon Jesus so that so that we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ, so that we would begin to appreciate him as he really is. Like Paul prayed, that you would give us uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That's what we want this morning. We've got to be encouraged in you. We want to see Christ. We want to wonder and worship at Jesus. And so we can't do that. We can't make that happen. And so, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you turn our hearts, would you turn our affection to Jesus this morning? Um, as your people, would we just all decrease as he is beautiful and glorified in this place? Would you do that? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, y'all. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. It's kind of where we're going to launch from. So, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're continuing in our series, Let Heaven and Nature Sing. We're talking about the songs that we sing at Christmas time, um, and last week we we learned all about "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel," very cool song, uh, the song that never ends. And this week we get to look at my second favorite Christmas song, only behind the one that we're singing next week. So, at least we have two good songs in a row for you guys. Hopefully, two good sermons. We'll see about that. Um, me and my family have been listening to a lot of ninety-eight point seven, The River, lately. They've been Playing Christmas music since Labor Day, if y'all didn't know that. <laughs> and and what we've noticed is all these different Christmas songs that they play. Almost all of them communicate the same message. And there's one song that kind of summarizes that message um, of all the songs, and that's this. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Almost every Christmas song is communicating that it's the most wonderful time of the year. Now, not all songs communicate that. We know that, unfortunately, grandma got run over by a reindeer. But most Christmas songs communicate this idea. And the song would say that the reason it's the most wonderful time of the year is because there's kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. And there's parties for hosting and marshmallows for roasting and caroling out in the snow and all this stuff. But if I were to ask us this morning, what is this time of year about for us? What would you say? If I were to ask you, and not not what should this time of year be about? We all know the right answers. But what actually characterizes this time of year for us? What's the defining reality of Christmas time for you? Some of us are all about getting gifts, right? We want that iPhone 17 or whatever it is that now. Some of us are about giving gifts. Some of us are busy, and we're caught up in all the chaos of the holiday. We're worried about Christmas cards and decorations and getting things done, and this is characterizing our existence for the month of December. Others of us are just thrilled that we're going to have some time with family. We're going to make memories. We're going to gather around the table. We're going to gather around the tree. We're going to share good unhurried moments with the people we love the most. For others of us, though, this time of year is characterized by anxiety, characterized by tension in an unhealthy family situation, It's characterized maybe by loneliness or by loss. But wherever you are on this spectrum, what characterizes this time of year for you? Today, the song we get to look at is O Come All Ye Faithful, uh, one one of the greatest Christmas songs that we have. It was written in 1744 by a guy named John Wade, English guy who lived in Portugal, wrote the hymn in Latin, and it floated around for about 100 years in Latin until an Anglican priest named Frederick Oakley found it in 1841 and translated it to English. But when he translated it to English, he translated the first line, O faithful approach ye, and for 13 years, nobody cared about it at all. But he kept tinkering with it, and then in 1854, he changed it to Oh, Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, and the rest is history. The song spread, and now we sing it, we sing it every year. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to use this song to remind us and to encourage us that for the Christian, There is one reality, there is one defining reality that's more wonderful than any meal or any music or any memory. There is one defining reality that's more real than any heartache or pain. There is one thing for us that should characterize this time of year. I want to see what that is and why that's the case. So that's where we're going today. Um, I'll start by reading the first two verses of O Come All Ye Faithful. Here's what it says. O Come All Ye Faithful. Joyful and triumphant, O oh, come ye, O oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him. Born the king of angels, O oh, come let us adore him. Sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation, sing all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory to God, all glory in the highest, Oh, come let us adore him. He's Christ the Lord. Okay, so the theme of these first two verses is... Simple. Basically, what's happening here is we are being told to come, to come to Bethlehem, to come and behold, to come and adore the one who is there. And the imagery from both of these verses comes from the same scriptural passage. So I want—I want to get to the word as quick as we can. It's our authority. It's our power. Um, so let me read for us where this—these verses come from in Luke chapter two, verses eight through uh, sixteen or fifteen. The Word of God, friends. Let me remind you too, as we sit on the Word, there's no better way we could ever spend our time than to sit under the Word of God. This is the best way we can spend our time is to humble ourselves under this Word, the gift of God to us. Here's what it says. On the night that Jesus was born, this happened. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to him, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Okay, here's what we got to do. We read these same passages every year. Some of us get bored with these passages. We got to get back in it. Okay, this is real. This actually happened. We need to be affected by this. And so let your imagination run wild a little bit. Put yourself in this situation. There are these shepherds out in the field. Okay, not very important guys as far as the world's concerned. Okay, they're kind of nobodies. And all of a sudden... Under the stars, an angel shows up, and they are scared out of their minds. But this angel says, don't be afraid. Hey, I got good news. The Messiah, he's here. And then as if to validate that message, this multitude of heavenly hosts appears to these shepherds, and they're singing, and they're giving glory to God. And then as soon as they're there, they're gone. And the shepherds are like, "Uh, (laughs) dude, maybe we should go to Bethlehem. And they're like, yeah, dude, I think that's probably the best thing. And they go, and sure enough, two teenagers and a baby. And what's happening in O Come All Ye Faithful in these first two verses of this song is we are essentially being invited into this worship. We're being invited to come and behold. We're being invited to come and adore the one in Bethlehem with the angels and with the shepherds. Okay, and it's here that we see the answer to our question. What should be the defining reality of this season? For us, what should characterize this what should characterize the Christmas season? And the answer is this. For the Christian, this season should be characterized by wondering at and worshiping the one in Bethlehem. This time of year should be all about wonder and worship. Now, let me explain what I mean by worship. Because I know some of you manly men get like scared when this term worship comes up. You're like, dude, if you're going to make me put my hand up in the air and sway, I ain't about, about to do that. And I'm not really into little baby Jesus and all the donkeys and the shepherds are petting the donkeys. That's just not me. Well, I, I'm not after outward worship here, men. Not, not at all. When I talk about wondering, and when I talk about worshiping, I'm talking about the heart. I'm talking about the affections. Okay, let, let me explain through some words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 15. He says to these hard-hearted religious people, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. What he's saying is there's a type of worship that is not at all glorifying to God, that's actually meaningless to God. It's in vain. So you could come in here and, and have your hands up in the air and sing in all the harmonies, but if your heart is not affected by Jesus, Jesus says this is meaningless. And in the same way, we could come in here and, and we could look very reverent and very holy and very pious, but if our heart is not engaged with Christ, Jesus says it's not worship at all. See, true worship is the response of the heart to who God is and to what he's done. Right? True worship is what happens when we behold God. We wonder. Okay, let, let me illustrate it this way. I've got a, a three-year-old little girl, and for her third birthday, we took her to see Disney on ice. Okay, it's her birthday, not mine. So we took her to Disney on ice. We go. Sit up front, and I got her in my lap, and it's just a sweet kind of daddy-daughter moment. And before, before the program starts, she's sort of looking around and, you know, trying to figure things out. But then all of a sudden, the lights, the lights go off, and then the spotlight comes on. And out come Minnie and Mickey and Disney princesses, and Julia's like, <sighs> <laughs> She's enthralled, right? I didn't have to tell her, honey, now make sure you enjoy this. No, she was captivated by it. She responded to what she was beholding. Okay, think about this in your own life. Think about the best concert you've ever been to. When you just got lost in the music, when you, when you totally forgot yourself. First concert I ever went to, my dad took me to see Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, that's right, Virgil. Okay. And when Less Groove tonight came on, nobody had to tell me to feel funky, right? That just starts, you just start feeling it, right? You can't not feel funky when that happens. But... But you guys, you guys get this concept. It's the same thing that happens when you hike to the top of a mountain and there's a majestic view. It's the same thing that happens when, when you see good art or you get lost in a good movie. Fellas, this is what happens when you're watching the game and the guy on your team makes a game-winning catch the last play of the game. Nobody has to tell you to get out of your chair and cheer. Right? You're compelled. You react to what you're beholding. Right? And this, this is nowhere truer than, than at childbirth. I mean, the nurse didn't have to come and tell us, hey, now make sure you remember this is a special moment. Cherish this. (laughs) You would just say, shut up, okay? (laughs) You're affected, right? You've beheld something and you respond to it. You can't not wonder. Bad grammar, good preaching, okay? In its purest sense, that's what worship is. Worship is the response of the heart to who God is and what he's done. It's wonder. It's amazement. It's self-forgetfulness. Right? This is what should happen to us when we behold the one at Bethlehem. But you know like I do, these things can't be forced. Right? You can't make appreciation happen. You can't make enjoyment happen. You can't just all of a sudden be enthralled with something. So what do we do? if we're here this morning and we're not wondering at the one in Bethlehem? What do we do if we're here this morning and we're not amazed by him? What what do we do if you're like me and Christmas so quickly gets filled up and it so quickly just moves away from Jesus? You get busy with all kinds of things other than him. What do we do when we don't wonder at him? Well, God has made a very close connection between our minds and our hearts, thank God. We don't have to throw reason out the window. So what we need to do is we need to zoom in on the one who is in Bethlehem. We need to work hard to begin to understand, with God's help, what was actually happening there. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am so glad that you are here this morning. And what I want to do now is I want to help you understand the Christian perspective about what was happening at Bethlehem because here's the reality whether you're a Christian or not a Christian we cannot respond appropriately to something if we don't understand it okay we have to understand something in some degree in order to respond appropriately let let me explain Um, in the 1890s golf was introduced at Brookline Country Club up in Boston I'm sorry for all the sports analogies that's all I got y'all know that <laughs> you have to live with it and forgive me grace please um, but golf was introduced at brookline country club famous famous club if you know golf you know this club um, and uh, there's a couple hundred members they're crowded around for this first demonstration of the game so this british guy comes over and he's teaching them how to play golf first hole's a par three down the hill and the guy hits it and makes a hole in one and nobody claps Nobody cheers. They just thought that's how the game worked. Ah, you just hit the ball, goes in the hole. Easy as that. See, because they didn't understand the game, they couldn't appreciate what they've just seen. The guy never made another hole in one in 30 more years of golf, by the way. When we don't understand something, we can't appropriately appreciate it. And so for us, if the proper response to the one in Bethlehem is to come and behold him, if the proper response to the one in Bethlehem is to come and adore him, to bow to him, to wonder and worship at him, we've got to begin to understand who he is. And so I want to spend the rest of our time today asking this question. What child is this? Who is this at Bethlehem? Verses 3 and 4 in our song help us unpack it. Verse 3, always left out, should not be left out, friends. Here here it is. True God of true God, light from light, eternal. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Word of the Father, begotten, not created. Sorry, I got mixed up between the first and the last. And then the last verse. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. The content of both of these verses has to do with the unique identity of the one in Bethlehem. And this is the reason why we should come to him and adore him, why we should come and worship him. And and both of these verses essentially come out of the same passage of of scripture. Verse three kind of comes through the Nicene Creed. It's in creedal language. Um, But both come from John chapter 1. So I want to move to John chapter 1 so y'all can see this rooted in the Bible. So if you've got your Bible, flip over to John 1. We'll have it on the screen. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The first reason, friends, why we should wonder and worship at the one in Bethlehem is because the one in Bethlehem was God. The one in Bethlehem was God. This is what the hymn writer saying, that he was true God of true God. That he was light from light. That he was begotten, not created. That the one in Bethlehem was the word of the Father. It's exactly what John's saying in John 1. And and let me give you guys a little bit of context here. um, Because how the original reader would have understood this, it's really a genius move by John. This term logos or word meant something very specific to the Greeks and meant something else very specific to the Jews. Now, to the Greeks, this term logos, it was the impersonal principle of reason that they thought governed the universe. In their worldview, there was this principle of reason, the logos, that was kind of chief among all virtues. For the Jews, though, this term logos meant something totally different. The logos, or the word, was the way that God communicated himself. It was God's form of communication. It was the way that he had made the world. It was the way that he had revealed himself. It was his message to people. And what John does here is he takes this term logos, that would have meant something both to Greek and to Jew, and he repackages it. And he says, let me tell you about the word. I'll tell you who the word is. And in verse one, he, he unpacks this. He says, in the beginning was the word. The first thing we see about the word is that whoever this word is, he's eternal. Okay? He didn't have a beginning. He's, he's begotten, not created. He's one of a kind. Okay, And, and then John says that the Word was with God. So this eternal Word, whoever He is, is somehow distinct from the Father. He has His own personality. It's not the same as God the Father. But, but then in the, the last part of verse 1, it says, The Word was God. So this eternal Word, His own personality, distinct from the Father, but equal to the Father. God Himself and then verses 3 and 4 say, say that all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And then in him, in this word, whoever he is, there was life. This is the source of life. Anybody or anything who has life, it's derived from this word. And then John, not leaving his, his original readers out in the dark, tells us in verse 14 that this word is a person, that this word is God the Son. And then in verse 17, he tells us that he has a name, his name is Jesus. Friend, do you ever think about Jesus as kind of one among many heroes in the Bible? I I fall into that sometimes. We got Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Isaiah and Jesus and Paul. And Jesus is like a cut above the rest, but we sometimes throw him in there with these other guys. John wants to make sure (laughs) that we understand that he is not like the rest. All those others bow to him. All those others wonder and worship at him. And John does this very purposefully. Look at, look at the verse 1 again. In the beginning was the word. When John says in the beginning, what do you think he's trying to draw our attention to? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let, let me show you this real quick because John wants to make sure that we know that this word didn't just start existing in Bethlehem. He has always been, he has always been God. So right in the first verses of the Bible, here's what we got. In the beginning, God, God the Father, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, God the Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said the Word of God, God's agent in creation, let there be light, and there was light. And if that's not clear enough, look with me at chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Plural pronouns. We see the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in the first chapter of the Bible. Here's what we got to get. If we're going to worship, and if we're going to wonder at the one in Bethlehem, we've got to get that before he ever came, Jesus was the high king of heaven. He always was. He is the one through whom the world was created. He is the one for whom the world was created. And I want to show you this one more place in the Old Testament, um, and I hope this will make you marvel, but shortly before Jesus' death, he's how to run in with these religious leaders, which was normal for him. Um, and John, in John chapter 12, explains through Isaiah chapter 6 what's happened. And here's what Isaiah 6 says. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and not heal them. That's a quote from Isaiah 6. And then John explains it. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. So here's the point I want to make to you. 740 years between Jesus was in Bethlehem, John says Isaiah saw him. And and let me show you in Isaiah 6 what Isaiah saw. Um, Here's what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds Shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 740 years before Jesus ever came, Isaiah saw him on the heavenly throne. Okay, and around him are these creatures, right, called seraphim, probably the most holy of all creatures. Right? And they can't even look at him. But they're so powerful that when they speak, the foundations of the thresholds of the heavenly temple shake. But the one on the throne is too holy, too pure for them to even gaze upon him. That's Jesus. That's the one who came. That's what he left for you. This should make us wonder. This should make us worship. But what's even more than that is this. Most kings, when they come, they come with all kinds of splendor and all kinds of pomp and all kinds of celebration. They want people to know they're in town. I mean, think about Aladdin. Make way for Prince Ali. Y'all remember that? Man, some of y'all hadn't seen a Disney movie in a while. Okay. He's got ninety five white Persian monkeys. Got the monkeys. Y'all don't remember that? Okay, I do. I watch a lot of Disney movies at my house. <laughs> when mama goes and that's just me and the girls, we turn on the TV fast. I know I'm a bad dad. But that's what I do. So. But most most kings come like that. Most kings come and they want you to know they're there. But how would this king come? How would the eternal one enter time? How would the creator come to his creation? It can be answered really in two ways. One, we could look at the circumstances of his arrival. And if we looked at the circumstances of, of his arrival, that would be enough to make us wonder. Right? He, he doesn't come to Rome. He doesn't come and overthrow Now he comes to this little town on the outskirts of the empire. Hardly a blip on the map. And he doesn't come in extravagance. He doesn't come in wealth. He's born outside. When he's born, he's placed into a feeding trough for animals. There's lots for us to wonder and worship at in the circumstances of his arrival. But what's even more spectacular than that... Is the form of his arrival, how he actually came. John chapter 1, verse 14 says it this way And the Word became flesh. The Word, the eternal, personal creator, the God of flesh became flesh. And dwelt among us. Right? Theologians call this the doctrine of the incarnation, carne, chili con carne, meat, right? Jesus took on flesh. God the Son became a man. The one that Isaiah saw took on a a human nature without losing any of his deity. And he became like us in every way. Theologians over the centuries have said it like this. He added to his divinity humanity. God the Son had always been God, but in Bethlehem, he became a man. This is the second reason why we should wonder and worship. In Bethlehem, God became a man. He became a man, a real man. And there's three phrases in the last two verses of the song that should help us get this. Because the songwriter wants us to marvel at this reality that God became a man. So I want to use these three phrases to help us. The first is this. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. So God chose to come through the womb of a teenager. And, And here's how it happened. The angel Gabriel came to Mary, said it would go down like this, Luke chapter one. The Holy Spirit Will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. God could have chosen to come into his world any way that he wanted. He made Adam as a grown man, could have done that again, could have done something else. But, but he chose to come through the womb of a teenager who had never known any man. And she became pregnant. What it means by the Holy Spirit coming upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, I don't know. But one day conception happened and the child in her womb was the true God God. Of true God, the light from light, the Son of God, the Word of the Father, the one who would reign on the throne of his father David forever, the one whose kingdom there would be no end. And think about the humanity of pregnancy. Ladies, remember, remember what it's like, right? All the excitement, all the protective instincts, all the fears. All the rearranging the furniture in the middle of the night. All the sending your husband to IHOP for blueberry pancakes at one in the morning. (laughs) I thought at least I'd get a few chuckles for that. (laughs) Par for the course with me. Um, Mary was pregnant. All the discomfort of pregnancy. All the emotions of pregnancy. Yes, it was a perfect pregnancy with the Son of God. But it was a very human pregnancy too. And late in the game, just to give you guys a little bit of what she went through, they've got to ride 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey. How do you like that in the eight-month-of-pregnancy? Man. But if God had not done it this way, Jesus would not have been fully God. And he would not have been fully man. And if he had not been fully God and fully man, he could not have saved the human race. He could not have represented God to us, nor could he have represented us to God. The word entered the womb. The second phrase that helps us with Jesus' humanity is this. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. So while they're in Bethlehem, the time comes for Jesus' birth. Okay, And we're talking real human birth. Think, think back to it, right? The water breaks, the contractions start, ha- start happening, the panic sets in, you are running around like a chicken with your head cut off, Joseph's going to look for some room in the inn, no room in the inn, he's in the doghouse for the next six months at least, and then these two teenagers, they find themselves outside. All alone. No nurse. No epidural, no bathtub. And then the baby starts to come. All the pain, all the pushing, all the contractions, all the sweat, all the tears, all the emotions, everything that goes along with human birth. God came into the world as an infant. The deliverer was delivered. And like any other infant, he was dependent on mom and dad. He had to learn how to sleep through the night. He had to learn how to eat real food. He had to learn how to crawl, and he had to learn how to walk. J.I. Packer says it this way. Love this. The Word became flesh. God became a man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. This should make us wonder. This should make us worship. You know, it's easy for us to think about Jesus like they portray him on TV or in movies or like they do in Renaissance art. And he's kind of glowing and he's got these flowing robes and he's very handsome and soft-spoken. He kind of makes you weak in the knees. You know that Jesus? It's a very different Jesus than we see in the scripture. Isaiah tells us of the true Jesus that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Right? And this was as true in his infancy as it, as it was in his adulthood. He was a very normal looking person. In fact, he was so normal that as an adult, when he went and ministered in his own hometown to the people who had known him for the longest amount of time, they say to him, wait, isn't this The carpenter? Isn't that Mary's son? And they were offended at him. You see, the people who, who knew him thought he was nothing more than just a really good dude till he rose from the dead and they started to worship him, which is another sermon for another holiday. But before we close, I'm sorry, the point here is this. Even though he looked normal, The one in Bethlehem was God. This time of year, we cannot move past this reality that in Bethlehem, God became a man. The eternal entered time. The word became flesh. So now, before we close, we ask this, why would he do it? Why would he do this? Right? Why would he come through the womb of a teenager? Why would God become a man in such a way that who he is would remain God and man forever? Why would he do this? And, and I think the answer is found in how the Jews would have understood this term logos, the word. Remember, Jesus is the word of God. And to them, that meant that the word is God's message to us. The word is what God wants to communicate to us, what he wants to say to us. And just like the shepherds came on that first night saying, peace on earth and goodwill to men, Jesus Christ has come proclaiming that same message. But not just telling us, showing us. Coming from God, right? Because because of our sin, friends, we had been separated from him. We had no relationship with him. And we were the ones who had wronged him. But oh, this good God wanted to reconcile with us. Shouldn't it have been us pursuing reconciliation? We were too dumb. Too dumb to know to do that. So he sent his own son with this message of reconciliation. He sent his own son to communicate to us that he wanted to be restored to us. He sent his own son to say and to prove that he loves you. And he wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with us. But more about that next week. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this news that the word became flesh? How do we respond to this reality that 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, the eternal personal creator came to earth? and became a man, we wonder and we worship more than anything else. That's what this time of year is all about, more than meals or music, more than family or food, more than Christmas cards or Christmas gifts. This time of year is about wondering at and worshiping the one who is in Bethlehem. So that's what we want to do now after I pray. However it feels natural to you from the heart to wonder at and worship this God, I want us to come and behold him, to come and adore him. He is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do worship you that you have sent your son. We're reminded of John's words in 1 John 4. In this is love, that you sent your only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We celebrate this reality that Jesus came, came to be our salvation, and you have done it so wisely, God. Um, I pray for us who have a hard time seeing this. We are so easily distracted. Lord, would you give us a glimpse of your glory right now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.